0: Thank you, guys, and thank you, Doug Fern, to shake your hand later. So kind. Good morning, Parkview. I'm Thomas Hoke, as uh, Pastor Doug said, and um, it's my privilege to speak God's word to you today. And uh, as the, oh boy, as the Corbins uh, just mentioned, we'll be in Ephesians four one through sixteen, and uh, what a glorious passage about the nature of the church Uh, here we are in this place worshiping together and you know why we worship on sundays this is the day that jesus rose from the dead every every week we get together on sunday because we're proclaiming yet again even if we didn't think about it the fact that the king is no longer dead the king is alive and he is seated on the throne forever amen that's incredibly good news, and that's why we're coming together to read the book that that King gave us, and to be the people that he made us to be. And this week we get to learn from Ephesians four, one through sixteen. And and as I was reading this and studying this this week and thinking about what does God have to say to His people about this, um, I was reflecting on a trip that my wife and I took not uh, pretty recently, and uh, we were out in the southwest here in Phoenix and sort of outside of Phoenix, and we were hiking. When we go on vacation, we, we like to do sort of outdoor activity sort of things. And so we went hiking. The sun was setting. And if you've ever been out west, you know it's just the sky is just beautiful. Uh, every sunset is like a, an 8 sunset is like a 10 sunset here. It just, I don't know what it is, but it's just special. And so we're hiking long, um, But the thing is, you know, you don't, you don't really notice that stuff. And I, what I realized is we're sort of in this technical area of hiking. You know, there's big rocks that we're trying to navigate around. And... Um, every single plant in Arizona will hurt you, by the way. They all have spikes. I don't know what it is. But, you know, so you're careful about that. And there's rocks. You don't want to twist your ankle because you're two miles from anything. And um, so you're really, you spend a lot of your time looking down. And I remember coming around, you know, sort of a bend in the, in the uh, trail. And Katie just said, hey, look. And I looked up and just the, the beauty of this sunset, uh, there, and there's just these huge rocks that are sort of all around us, uh, is just overwhelming. And it was one of those moments where I thought, number one, I should take a picture of this, and then number two, no picture of this could ever be worth anything. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. You, know, you have just this incredible vista of beauty, and you just go, wow, the Lord made this. But, because I was spending so much time looking, well, you've gotta do both, right? If I don't look down at my feet, I'm gonna twist my ankle and it's gonna hurt, or I'm gonna brush up against a spiky plant or a rattlesnake and we're in the hospital. But, uh, on the other hand, isn't isn't the beauty the whole point? I wish, uh, often on those hikes, I wished I had two pairs of eyes. One that would keep me focused on the beauty before me and the other that could keep me taking the right steps to get to see that beauty. And that, Exact thing to to have two sets of eyes, one on the big picture and one on the step by step, day by day practices. Uh, that is what Paul wants to give us in Ephesians four verses one through sixteen. Through the book of Ephesians to this point, uh, the theme, the the prevailing view that he's given us is this lofty vista that's sort of coming around the the bend in the trail, and wow, look how big the church is! Look how incredible! The gospel is. It's not just sort of a, oh, Sunday we come and sing a song. Uh, The glory of the church is so uh, significant. It's so eternal. It's so, it's massive. In fact, what we're doing right now, this is the most significant thing happening in the universe right now. We're giving the Lord of heaven eternal glory. And when we go about our week to week sort of obeying Jesus, it feels sort of mundane and it feels sort of, just sort of blah, you know. I'm just I'm doing the dishes and I'm trying to love my spouse and I'm trying to be kind to my neighbor and those sorts of things. But actually, Paul wants us to remember in in chapters one through three especially, those little acts of obedience are resounding through eternity to the glory of King Jesus. Wow. That is is the grand vista of chapters one through three. And in chapter four, here we are turning a big page. uh, some have called this the hinge of the book of Ephesians, from sort of the bigness of the gospel. He's not leaving it behind. Remember, he's going to sort of give us two sets of eyes here. Uh, but, uh, for example, in chapters 1 through 3, there's only one verb in the imperative, okay? You know what an imperative is? Run, jump, obey, that sort of thing. There's only one. And, in fact, the only, the only it's in chapter 2, verse 11. The only command given in chapters 1 through 3, Remember. Remember. Seems significant. Whereas in chapters four through six, there's 32 of them, okay? Clearly there's, there's a difference. If chapters one through three are sort of the 100,000 foot view of, of what the church is, then chapter four, where we're beginning today, is the pilot coming on and saying, we're beginning our initial descent into the rest of the book of Ephesians. It wants us to see how can we fulfill our calling So, that's our big question for today. I know it was a little bit of a long-winded introduction, but I really want to situate us into the book of Ephesians and especially what we're reading today. Is Paul beginning to sort of come out of the clouds, see the beauty on the ground, and while we've seen this incredible vista, well, now the question is, what do we do day by day? What do we do step by step to make that huge vision real? Parkview Church, not just on Sunday morning at 10.30, but throughout the week. So, may I pray? Shall we pray? We must pray, we must pray. Holy Father, what a privilege to have your word. What a privilege to gather together and sing about the glory of Jesus. Thank you for pouring your Holy Spirit on us, giving us power to say no to sin and yes to you. And we pray that especially today, you would show us what each of us has been called to as as part of your church, that you would call us the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, and that you would give grace to us, that you would give gifts to us so that we can be functional members, functional parts of that body. So fill us with that vision of your glory and also help us today to walk away with a few steps to know what it would look like in day-to-day life to embrace this vision. Do all this and more for your glory, amen. All right, so our big question today is how can Parkview Church fulfill its calling? How can Parkview Church fulfill its calling? In this passage, the Lord is gonna teach us three fundamental orientations that we must commit to in order to fulfill our calling as his church. Uh, And the first one that we see is right there in verses 1 through 6, and is that we would maintain unity with fellow believers. Maintain unity with fellow believers. That is how we can fulfill our calling. We see this explicitly, like I said, in verses 1 through 6, especially in verses 3 through 6. It says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Did you guys hear any words repeated frequently in that? Okay. Yeah. Paul, he overdoes it here almost (laughs) by showing us how significant the unity of the church is. And I think it's telling that as we transition from that big picture vision of chapters one, two, three, one through three, one, two, three is good too one through three, down into the more practical uh, of four through six, the first command that's given in the entire second half of the book of Ephesians is this. Maintain your unity. The first thing that we must say, the first thing that the Lord is telling us today is this. The unity of his church is incredibly precious to Jesus. The way that we relate to one another in God's household is at the top of the list when it comes to our priorities as Parkview Church. God cares about the way we speak to one another, about the way that we speak about one another. God cares about the way we think about one another. And uh, he cares, uh, of course, about how we treat one another. And in fact, it's a beautiful picture that emerges from this passage. It's a picture of a church where the world's divisions no longer apply. That when you walk through these doors, or the church, the doors of any church that's faithful to Jesus, uh, it's it's not a perfect place. None of us would say that. No, it's not a perfect place, but it's a place where a commitment to the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, means that when there is offense among us, between us, and division, there's a way forward. Nothing can transcend the unity that we have, the unity of the Holy Spirit. We've been connected by faith to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, but we've also been connected to one another by that same Spirit. And there's more. That sounds a little bit abstract, but there's more. Notice this word maintain. Maintain, he says, the unity of the Spirit, maintain it. It's an interesting word to use. In our world of shaming and blaming and dividing and denouncing, the unity that we have is not a unity that we manufacture. This is good news. The unity that we have is not unity that we create by taking a poll, who wants this, who wants that, and then making sure everyone gets exactly what we want. Unity that we have is not a unity that we create by keeping track of all of our preferences and making sure everyone is happy, and if you aren't happy, you can go somewhere else. The unity that we have is not based on each of our personalities, each of our preferences, how much status each of us has. The unity that we have is a gift that we have inherited through God's spirit. It's not something we create as if we could manufacture a church where everyone is pleased with every song and every Sermon and every every aspect of it, the temperature of the coffee and the (laughs) every single bit. No, the church's unity is a gift from God's Spirit, and our responsibility is not to create it. Hear this, it's not to create it; it's to maintain it. This is good news. As a kid, I remember uh, I would go off to summer camp each each uh, summer. Can you believe it? It's in the summer, and. and I remember uh, there were a lot of things, you know, obviously the counselors played a big role in the summer experience. And I remember I really looked up to the counselors. I thought they were really cool, just super cool guys. Okay, I just, every, basically everything they did I thought was great. You know, they could do diving off the diving board, they did flips, they did also, you know, they just knew what to say in every situation, and I just, I just thought they were great. But the thing that I thought was best about them is they could start a fire, okay? Now, I was hopeless at starting a fire, and to be perfectly honest with you, I am still hopeless at starting a fire. A simple campfire, uh, I, I'm just gonna, can we be honest? This is, okay, we just said we're bound by the spirit, so you guys, okay. I have a can of lighter fluid. <laughs> that is how I start fires, <laughs> okay? Every single time, especially if there's an audience. You know, this summer, when our community group guys would get together, often we would sort of do a campfire thing in our backyard, and if they showed up before I had the fire started, I was just miserable. I'd be like, does anyone wanna do it? Yeah, Yeah, Ben, Ben is in our group. He's like a, a boy scout, he was a boy scout growing up. I was like, Ben, maybe you could do it? Yeah, I was, I'm awful. But, once they had started the fire, the camp counselors, the one thing I could do, and I was pretty good at, was keeping the fire going. The pressure was off, right? Just keep it lit. Keep it going, add sticks, add logs, keep it together, stoke it, you could blow on it, right, you know? Feed it, give it everything it needs, don't quench it, whatever you do, don't extinguish it. And I think there's a great likeness to our job in maintaining the unity of the spirit. Not to create unity, not to find some little thing that sort of connects us all, but rather to stoke it, to nourish it, and most of all to avoid quenching the unity that we have, to avoid extinguishing it. And so I think if we're now to apply this, I I think the question that we should be asking ourselves today is this, in what ways am I contributing to the unity of Parkview Church? In what ways am I contributing to the unity of Parkview Church, maintaining it? And the second one, sort of the negative question, is there any way that I am harming unity of Parkview Church? What ways am I contributing? Is there any way that I'm harming? Thankfully, this passage actually gives us a few guidelines, a few virtues for what it looks like to maintain unity. Uh, You see, it says in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, I could spend the rest of this time. In fact, this is just, I hope if, please, I hope you're in a community group, but if, if you are, I hope that you take this passage and just think so deeply about it. Because there is, it's one of those passages where I look at and I go, okay, I'm preaching it. This could be five sermons. You probably some of you are thinking it already feels like five sermons, but no, it could it could really be. And I think just here, I don't have enough time to even go through it. What what would it look like to really embrace humility, gentleness, each of these to to contribute to unity? But so I'll just mention one, and that's humility. Unity of the in the church is promoted when we put others first, and we think of ourselves less, not think less of ourselves, C.S. Lewis tells us, but we think of ourselves less. My needs just aren't as present in my mind as the needs of others, that is. When we're oriented not to self-promotion, but to self-denial. Unity thrives when we, and this is what humility looks like, when we assume the best about others while keeping our own intentions under suspicion and not the other way around. The normal way is to say, oh, they didn't really mean that. Can you believe? I bet they think this. But rather to say, you know what? I know it sounded like that, but I'm sure I know them. I'm sure they meant better than they said. Meanwhile, you know, I see the way my heart's reacting. Did I really, did I really mean that? Unity thrives when we speak about others the same way to their face as we do behind their back perhaps more than those things, uh, humility promotes unity because it's in touch with one core reality of the New Testament, and that's this. We cannot live the Christian life alone. And honestly, as I, as I reflect probably on the church, maybe at large, uh, but and maybe it is less true at East, as I've thought about and talked a little bit with Doug Fern, but I do think probably the most common way that we undermine unity is not sort of outwardly by separating from others, but just by sort of thinking, I got this. I can say, it's sort of me, Jesus, I got the Bible, and you know, I, maybe I'll help some other people that are needy for, for help, but you know, okay. Here's my space. We need each other to live the Christian life, it's, we do. It's hard to stoke the fire of unity if all the logs stay in their own houses. How about this? Let's just all, hey, can we just turn to, our, turn to your neighbor and say, I need you. I need you. That's for, Okay, good. It, it, my question, I think, to you, you don't have to turn to every neighbor. That's, although maybe we could, should we just shut it down? Just Okay, no. <laughs> we need each other. You would, to ask yourself, is there anyone in this room who knows about my struggles with sin and is helping me to address them, speaking the gospel to me, reminding me, that sin can offer me nothing because God has already given me everything in Jesus. Who's reminding you of that? Maybe this week you need to have the humility, promote unity, to go up to a friend or maybe someone who's not yet a friend and say, hey, let's get coffee. It could, it could be as simple as that. Nothing makes me more confident about the maturity of someone who approaches me than when they sincerely say, I really need prayer. Nothing impresses me more about someone's maturity than when they say, I need help. When we walk in humility, we maintain unity with fellow believers. In our world of shaming and blaming and, uh, and don't apologize or you'll look weak. What a beautiful thing to be a place where you can have the safety to say, I'm not there yet. I screwed up, I messed up, I need help. So how can we fulfill our calling as a church? Uh, Answer number one from this passage is this, by maintaining unity with our fellow believers, especially by humbly admitting that we need one another. Second thing that we can do to fulfill our calling as a church is to discern, develop, and deploy God's gifts. Three Ds, okay? Discern, develop, and deploy God's gifts. We see this in verses 7 through 12 where it says, but grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then again in verses 11 through 12, where it says, he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what? In fact, to equip the saints, which in the New Testament, saint, applies to every person who is in Jesus, because they're perfectly holy. To be in Jesus means to be, saint literally means holy one. That's what that word translated is. To equip the saints, that is you, for the work of ministry. Oh, me too, but for building up the body of Christ. We must discern, develop, and deploy those gifts that we've been given. There's this interesting quote here in verses seven through 12. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm 68. We heard a little bit of it from Doug Fern here at the opening of the, our service. But the psalm is really interesting. It's a psalm of, It's a psalm of war, really. It's a battle song, it's like a diss track, you know. It's, it's declaring God's utter victory over all of God's enemies. And God's victory comes to a crescendo in verse 18, which is the one that Paul quotes. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. It's a picture of God's utter victory. He ascends on high, the, the captives are Satan's sin and death. And, and he applies this to, the ch- to Christ and the church. While in the Old Testament it was talking about God, just sort of in, as it was understood then, Paul then applies this psalm to Christ and his church. So what Paul is saying is, in Christ's death and resurrection he dis- delivered the decisive blow in God's battle against every one of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. They are defeated foes, biding their time until Jesus returns to finish the job once and for all. And with this quote of Psalm 68, Paul is doing what I mentioned here at the beginning uh, of the sermon, lifting our eyes back up to that 100,000 foot view of the glory of the church in the cosmic realm that we're so familiar with from chapters one through three. He's saying, you know, it was, wasn't it cool when God made the sun stand still so that Israel could defeat the Amorites? Remember that story? Wasn't that cool, Paul's saying? Yeah, that was cool. Wasn't it impressive when God separated the Red Sea so that the the Israelites could go through and escape from slavery in Egypt? Wasn't that cool, he says? That was so cool. Yeah, wasn't it cool when God conquered Jericho and all they did was they marched around and they blew the trumpet and the walls came? Wasn't that cool? Wow, God really, great victory there. Granted, I mean, wasn't it great when, uh, remember when Elijah, you know, he was going against the prophets of Baal and they, you know, they built the altar and he said, why don't you pour some water on there? Pour some water, pour some water. Meanwhile, keep yours dry over there, prophets of Baal. And then fire comes from heaven and consumes one. And God was like, ah, this is because I'm the real God and you guys are, that's a sham. Wasn't that cool? Paul says, each of those, while mighty and wonderful, pale in comparison with the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Through it, death has not been delayed. Death has been defeated. Satan has not been damaged. Satan has been destroyed. Sin has not been defanged. Sin has been disassembled. And now, hear this. Bringing about the results of this forthcoming reality is the responsibility of God's spirit through God's church. You. Me. Us. I mean, that's a pretty beefy calling, I'd say. Okay? We're going to be making Jericho look like pretty good. We're going to make the Red Sea look like, yeah, that was good. I'd say good. Have you seen the church? This passage then portrays Christ as this wizened, battle-hardened military general, who from on high, um, not that he wasn't in the battle, in fact, he was the key player in the battle, but now from on high, he is directing his army, and he not only knows how to train his troops for battle and, and to give them the gifts that they need, but also to put them on the battlefield in the perfect position for success. While verses one through six in this passage emphasize the corporate reality of the church and their spiritual unity, their oneness, one faith, one, 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 verses 7 through 12 emphasize the gift that each one, each one of you has been given and been bestowed upon each believer in Jesus so that each of us who belongs to Jesus has a role to play in God's plan of cosmic redemption through Jesus, In fact, what God tells us here about how his church should work uh, is quite incredible because it, it sort of flips on its head the way that we normally think about a church. It says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, uh, it's a, it's the people that we normally think of as sort of professional Christians, right? The people that we sort of we pay them to do the work of ministry, to do what the church does, maybe, instead... The purpose of the gifts that God gives to his people are to do the work of ministry. In fact, my job has only been accomplished if I make you better ministers of the gospel. If this isn't true of Parkview Church, we are toast. We are just toast. And let me just put it on myself, and on Tuck Fern, <laughs> first. If, if I, in my weekly, weekly, daily, even you know, hourly work, uh, working for this church, if I am not multiplying ministry and training you, training all of us, sometimes that looks like you know reading a book, sometimes it looks like preparing a sermon, but if all of that is not aimed at making you the people God needs us to be, I, I haven't really done my job. It's a difference between addition and multiplication. I only have so many hours in a week, and they're meant to be used to serve for the saints to do the work of ministry. But it's also on all of us. God has known since before time began, not only that you would be born into the family you would be born, not only that you would live the place you live, that you would come to trust Jesus, if you're here and you trust Jesus, but that he would give you gifts that would be put to work perfectly in the place where you are right now. gave you a special gift, every single one of you that belongs to Jesus, to deploy in order to bring God's plan for cosmic redemption to completion. So, gotta, gotta use them. Uh, one of Paul's most frequent metaphors here is that the church is the body of Christ. The body, body of Christ. Christ is the head, in fact he uses it right here, and the church is the body. Uh, each of us, he says, are like members of this body. He says, some of us are an arm, some of us, I don't know, a hand, an eye, an ear. Some of us, don't raise your hand, Our toes, okay? And in fact, uh, this, this metaphor didn't really come home to me in a, in a deep way until I was trying to run a race and I, I hurt my toe. And this seemingly insignificant part became enormously important because I could not take a step without pain. And I realized, you know what? As insignificant as it was, it had a very important role to play. And it didn't really hit home until then. Each part of us, therefore, in Christ's body, plays a crucial role. So the questions we should be asking ourselves here are, like I said, discern, develop, and deploy. First of all, discern it. Discern it, figure it out, right? I use discern, it's like a bigger word, but it starts with D which was helpful here because they all had to start with D. Discern, develop, deploy. Have you discerned the gifts that God's spirit has given you? Do you know, have you opened the box? Have you unwrapped it? Have you looked inside and said, that's what I got? Great. Do you know what you've got? Some examples, I'm um, just quickly, you might have the, the gift of hospitality. And here we're not talking about making great meals and you know, making everyone, you know, when we think of hospitality, I think what often comes to mind is you're really good at having your friends over and feeding them food they like. That's not exactly what we have in mind here. In fact, um, people who have the gift of hospitality, they might be good at making food. They might be good at having people, over. but what they do, it's, it's not dependent on location. In fact, when you have the gift of hospitality, you have the gift of pa- making people feel at home when they're around you no matter where you are. You show them the welcome of Jesus no matter where you are. You have the gift of hospitality. You might have the gift of administration. When an idea comes up and people say, how are we gonna accomplish this? You say. I've got some thoughts, right? We need, oh boy, we, you need that. We need that here. Uh, encouragement. You feel drawn to those who need a shot in the arm, who, needs, who need to be exhorted to keep going and to be reminded of the truth. Uh, you might have the gift of faith, the gift of evangelism. Read 1 Corinthians 12. That may, might be a first step to see what, what gifts do I have. So discern it. Often you might, we might suggest taking a test. We, you may have seen these you know, online. What are your spiritual gifts, that sort of thing. I think, um, go ahead, do that. I think what's much better is to ask those around you. These gifts generally emerge, not in isolation. God gave them to build up his church, as we see, so they'll emerge in, in your service to those around you. Develop the gifts that you have. Ask, ask Doug Fern. Ask someone here, how can I develop this gift? Is there a book I can read? Is there something I can do? Train others in your gift. That's generally the best way to learn something. And finally, deploy the gifts. Deploy your gifts in your home, your community group. We need you. We just, the church, we are the church. You are the church. We need you. So we can fulfill our calling as a church by discerning, developing, and deploying the gifts of God's spirit. And finally, we can fulfill our calling as a church by aiming at likeness. We see that a couple of times in this passage. We see in verse 13, where it says, uh, until we attain, until is a wonderful, gracious word here, by the way. Until means it's going to happen. The only way that word is used is for things that are inevitable. Until until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to complete personhood, to, f- to be fully grown up. To aim at likeness. This is the destiny of every believer to look like Jesus and it's the goal that we should aim for. You know, it can get complicated because as a church, we do a lot of things. We've got a lot of stuff, right? We, we've got coffee and kids ministry and we've got little retreats and we've got membership and we've got all these sort of things going we've got barbecues we've got bake sales you know there's all sorts of just there's a lot of stuff right but the final evaluation of every single thing we do no matter what it is youth retreat marriage whatever it is is this does it make us look more like jesus Does it form us, does it facilitate that miraculous and glorious transformation whereby we say no to sin and yes to God? Does it form us, both heart and hands, into Jesus? Does it bring us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God in Jesus? Does it make us look like, in fact, did you know we're, right now, we're doing that. Did you know that? All week I've been begging the Lord that each of us would walk out of here thinking like, looking like, acting like, smelling like doing the things that the Son of God would do. We're doing it right now. That's right. It, and it, by the way, did you know it makes a difference to come with that expectation? Come to church expecting to change. It, it's fun. You should try it. It's great. Paul envisions the church as this sort it's a child that needs to grow up, right? And so that's, that's what we're aiming to do. And how do we do it? He says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, speaking the truth, the truth of the gospel, in love that we might be built up, speak the truth in love, speak the gospel, are you struggling, for example, with the first part, are you struggling to be gentle, like Paul calls us to be, don't don't try to get there just by sort of meditating on God's commands to be gentle, just thinking about be gentle, be gentle, be gentle, it won't get you there, do you know what, what will? Meditate on the fact that when we deserve death, God gave us life. The mercy that God has given us in Jesus is the only thing that will truly change your heart to be gentle to those around you. Are you struggling to be humble like Jesus? Don't don't just gut it out or, or, you know, often we try to be humble, we just sort of try to convince ourselves that we're bad people. Um, It won't work, I'll just warn you. That won't work. Instead. Set your gaze on the son of God who came not to be served but to not to be served but to serve and to give his life up. Struggling to be patient? Take a look at Jesus. Don't just think be patient, be patient, try harder and do more. The God who knows the end from the beginning came and lived in time and space in monotony and agony for you. And he will fill you with patience. Parkview, if we're going to fulfill our calling as Christ Church, we must walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by actively and intentionally maintaining our spiritual unity, maintaining it, by discerning, developing, and deploying the gifts of God's spirit among us, and finally, by aiming every effort, every single thing that we do, the overarching goal of our lives and the goal of this church is that we would look more like Jesus. He is, he is so honored when we do everything we can to look like him and to help others see him and look more like him. So let's bring honor to Jesus this week, bear, presence, bear witness to the presence and power of God among us to our city and beyond by being the church that God has called us to be, fulfilling the call that he has given us. Let's persist in the name of Jesus. Let's pray that God would do this. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you that you have achieved the ultimate victory in Jesus and sent your spirit so that we can truly change, so that we can be a church that loves you and looks more and more like you little by little every day. We pray that we would heed your call today to take these steps to maintain the unity that you have given us by your spirit to deploy, develop, discern the gifts you've given us, serving one another. And Lord, help us aim everything at looking more like Jesus, your son. We pray for his glory, amen.